Hello and welcome to this episode of Tech Personal Finance. I'm your host, Mike Troxel. Today, we're going to cover everything you need to know about restricted stock units or RSUs. A few things we'll cover today. What are restricted stock units and how are they taxed? We'll cover some common misconceptions around them as well as general guidance. We'll also go over the number one key concept you need to know to understand RSUs. And of course, we will ask the classic RSU question. The first thing worth mentioning and getting out of the way is restricted stock units or RSUs are different than restricted stock, even though they sound very similar. Restricted stock is something you might get as a founder or very early stage employee. On the other hand, RSUs or restricted stock units, which we're digging into today, generally come in more mature, late stage or public companies. RSUs, like other types of equity, usually come as a part of a four year vest. You'll get a grant of say 100 shares that will come to you over a four year period. Many times these shares will vest quarterly, sometimes it is monthly, sometimes annually. Typically with equity grants, especially new hire grants, there is a one year cliff. This is usually referred to as a four year vest with a one year cliff. To give you an example of this vesting schedule, four years is 48 months. So let's use an RSU grant of 48 shares to keep it simple. With monthly vesting, you're set up to receive one share per month over four years or 48 months. With a one-year clip, however, you don't get any shares for the first 11 months. Once you reach the one-year mark and get over the cliff, you will actually receive 12 shares on that day. The regular vesting schedule begins after the cliff as you will now receive one share per month for the remaining 36 months as long as you remain employed. If you're not employed long enough to reach the one-year mark, then you will not receive any shares. Keep in mind that RSUs are not options. Many times, employee equity is referred to as options for slang, though they are not options as there is no option to purchase or exercise. Similar to a year-end cash bonus from your employer, with RSUs, the timing is set in stone, the structure is set in stone. The amount, however, will depend on a few different factors. For a cash bonus, the variables may be your individual performance over the year and your company performance. For an RSU vest, the only variable is the stock performance. For example, you know you're receiving 10 shares on the 15th of the month, but you don't know whether those shares will be worth $9,000 or $900. For RSUs, the taxes are relatively straightforward. We will reiterate this throughout the episode, but the easiest way to understand RSUs is this. Treat it as a cash bonus where the company automatically took the bonus amount and instead of sending it to your bank account via direct deposit, they send the funds into a brokerage account and it purchases company stock. Just like you hopefully have your credit cards and mortgage on auto payment, this special brokerage account essentially has an auto purchase function. Understanding this concept is very important for many reasons, 
If you can understand this simple concept and get it ingrained in your mind, a lot of confusion and misconceptions around RSUs would be eliminated. The first reason the RSU cash bonus concept is important is around taxation. The vesting of RSUs is taxed exactly like a cash bonus. It is ordinary income. It shows up on your W-2 in box one. It's subject to the same taxes, federal, state, local, social security, Medicare. Furthermore, the withholding rate is exactly what other cash bonuses are withheld at. Notice I said withholding rate and not tax rate. Bonuses and RSUs are almost always withheld at 22%, despite them being taxed up to 37%. It's worth highlighting this last point. Many times we conflate withholding rates versus tax rates. Having tax withholding does not mean all taxes have been paid. We hear this all the time. The taxes are already taken out. If 22% is the standard federal withholding rate and you're in the 35% bracket, so again, if 22% is the standard federal withholding rate and you are in the 35% bracket, then yes, some taxes were taken out, but there's still a tax liability for you. Your actual tax rate depends on your situation but most tech employees are in the 24 to 37% bracket. Keep in mind, these tax rates I'm referring to are federal only. States will have their individual tax rates most of the time. It is worth noting that some companies allow you to adjust your withholding rate. And most notably, those are Facebook, Google, Airbnb, but the majority of companies do not allow this. This underwithholding with RSUs or cash bonuses can create some major issues because many tech workers do not sell any shares when they invest. And therefore, every RSU vest can create a sizable future tax bill. If I told you that we have $50,000 in the bank and we have a $50,000 tax bill coming in a few months, what would you want to do with the cash? Most people would want to keep it in their savings or somewhere secure. Most people would not put all of it in one stock or put the money in crypto. I've seen this happen all too often where RSUs create a tax liability when they invest because of the underwithholding. There is no selling of the RSUs for that future tax bill. The stock potentially drops 30, 40, 50%. And now we need to sell twice as many shares to pay for the tax bill when we only needed to sell a handful when they invested. In other words, we're getting taxed on this money that we don't even have. The topic of holding, selling, and diversifying RSUs can be very nuanced. However, looking at the tax liability of each RSU vest is relatively straightforward. I believe there is a very compelling case to sell at least some of the shares after each vest in order to pay the tax bill that the RSUs create. The second reason the RSU cash bonus concept is important is around selling the shares close to their vesting date. There is a common misconception about RSUs that it's more advantageous to hold on to them for more than a year versus selling them right away. This is another example of conflating two different situations. 
While it is true that if there are large gains in a stock, it is more advantageous to hold on to them for more than a year. If you had a choice to sell a stock at a large gain, again, it's important that it's at a large gain. If you had a choice to sell it after one year or slightly before one year, all else equal, we would certainly always pick the greater than one year option in order to qualify for long-term status and pay less taxes. Absolutely. But when you get an RSU and a share vests, remember, it is the same thing as you taking your bonus, logging into your brokerage account and buying a share of stock. The next time you buy a share of stock, watch how much the price moves over the next two minutes. Usually, there's not much price movement at all. And there's no penalty for selling it since there's basically no gain. Maybe a couple pennies of gain or loss here or there. The IRS even rounds to the nearest dollar, so the gain would have to be more than 50 cents for it to even land on their radar. This is one example why it is very important to consider things both in relative terms and in absolute terms. In relative terms, you would not want to increase your chances of getting struck by lightning 10% today, but in absolute terms, a 10% increase from an extremely small probability is still extremely small and makes virtually no difference. How it relates to RSUs, a 37% tax rate versus a 20% for capital gains sounds like a big difference in that you would always want the 20%. But if the gain is only $7, in absolute terms, there's barely any difference. This is an example of trying not to let the tax tail wag the dog. If we're making an investment decision worth tens of thousands of dollars, the tax rate on a gain of $9 should not even be a consideration, even if the tax rate was 100%. Now that you fully understand that RSU vests are just like a cash bonus with an automatic stock purchase, it is time for the classic RSU questions. If you received a cash bonus today, would you rush to go buy the company stock the second the funds hit your bank account? Would you rush to buy any stock? The answer, of course, is no. Personally, I think a better question than that hypothetical one is this. Looking back over the years at all of the cash bonuses you've ever received, have you ever just one time, one single time, rushed to log in immediately after you got the money, rushed to log in to purchase your company stock. No. Therefore, you're getting defaulted or nudged into this position. If all of a sudden the compensation came in cash and the employees had a choice to buy as much stock as they wanted, we would have wildly different results. This is definitely something to think about. How much of our stock holdings are due to an intentional decision we made and how much is due to an external force? Given our hand is being forced in a way to acquire the stock, in some sense, it is not a big deal, and we can always sell if we want to. This sounds great in theory, but it ignores a few human qualities that we have and biases that come with it. One is status quo bias or inertia, where it's easier to keep things as is versus making a change. Commonly, we delay making a change until the pain of the status quo is worse than the pain of making a change. Then we have the endowment effect. 
where we value things that we have and own more than they're really worth. Even though we didn't decide to acquire these shares, we value them and we want to hold them because we own them. In real life, this might be your favorite coffee cup. You might put a value on it of $10, but if you had a garage sale, you might not get a buyer for over $3. Then there's what I call the employment effect, which is when we value stock more because we work there. This really starts to come into play when somebody takes a new job or gets laid off, the feelings on the stock tend to shift dramatically. Another important thing to know about RSUs is why companies give out stock as compensation in the first place. Some would say alignment of interest. Some would say employees are more committed to the mission. Those are both decent reasons, for sure. Charlie Munger was once quoted saying, show me the incentives and I will show you the outcome. Well, there is a major incentive for companies to give out stock for accounting reasons. Giving out cash is classified as an expense and it cuts into profitability, negatively affecting some of the company's key metrics. Giving out stock also negatively impacts the company, but not on the income statement. Here's an example to help you understand, though in real life it plays out a little differently. If a company has 100 shares worth a dollar a piece, if you do a good job, they could give you a $10 bonus. But instead, let's say they just created 10 additional shares out of thin air, so now there are 110 shares. They didn't send any money directly to you. They just created shares out of thin air. Essentially, the other shareholders paid for your bonus since their equity is now worth a bit less. Previously, maybe they owned one share out of 100, but now they own one share out of 110. This is also known as share dilution. You could view this as the opposite of share buybacks, which you may have heard in the news headlines over the last few years, where companies essentially purchase shares and remove them from circulation. This essentially provides shareholders with a larger percentage of the company, as opposed to creating more shares and diluting the ownership. Keep in mind, this is a simple example. How it plays out is a little more complicated. Another component worth thinking about regarding RSUs is your unvested shares. Commonly, there is some hesitation around selling shares, which is totally understandable. However, too often we ignore the shares that will be vesting right around the corner. For example, let's say you have 10 shares today and 10 more that are vesting next month. An example of something I hear is, I want to sell and diversify or sell to pay for an upcoming expense but I don't want to sell because the stock might go up. You could be right or not, but let's just assume you're right. If you do sell those 10 shares today and the stock goes up 400% over the next few weeks, those new and uninvested shares are still benefiting from that growth. You still have those shares in a sense. They're just not in your pocket yet. They're coming to you soon. The only reason they would not come to you is if you lose your job in the next couple of weeks, though it is still very common for tech companies to accelerate your vesting in the event of layoffs. Rewinding a little bit, RSUs are like a cash bonus where there's one variable, and this variable is the stock price on that date. So in this example, your bonus that's coming in a few weeks is going up by 
even though you don't currently own any shares. Not a bad thing. When thinking about selling any shares, it is important to think about two additional factors, blackout periods and wash sales. With tech companies, most of the time, the employees are restricted from selling shares outside of certain windows. Usually those open windows last for two to four weeks right after the company reports their quarterly earnings. Blackout periods and open windows are important, especially if you need to sell shares to generate cash for timely situations like a tax bill or a down payment on a home. One way to get around blackout periods is to set up an automated trading plan, technically referred to as a 10B51 plan. Not all, but most companies allow you to set something like this up. A 10B51 plan involves working with a stock custodian like Fidelity, E-Trade, Schwab, and essentially putting a contract in place where you have predetermined plans to sell shares in the future. Typically, you are only allowed to enter into a 10B51 plan during an open trading window, and usually there is a cooling off period before any sales take place. The other item I mentioned is about wash sales, and this is primarily focused around selling shares at a loss. The IRS disallows losses if you acquire identical shares within 30 days. I'm going to repeat that. The IRS disallows losses if you acquire the same or identical shares within 30 days. For example, if we sell 100 shares at a loss in order to tax loss harvest and maybe help our tax situation, but we have 100 additional shares that are vesting, say, two weeks later, that initial loss that we thought we were taking will be disallowed. Essentially, we won't really know that until we get our tax documents next year. With open trading windows and potentially different types of equity vesting like ESPPs and RSUs, it can get very complicated managing the timing of selling shares with new vests. If you'd like to learn more about wash sales, we have one of the top-ranked articles on the topic. If you go search wash sales RSUs, we'll also link to the blog in the show notes. Another item worth mentioning briefly today regarding RSUs is something that we've covered a bit more extensively in episode 14. We call this the double tax on RSUs, and essentially, if you do sell RSUs or any other employer equity, be very careful about how it is reported on tax forms, such as your W-2 and 1099. It's very common for this to get double counted and be taxed twice. I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode 14. You can skip to around the 1830 mark. It was published on March 30th, 2023. You can also look at our blog post, which I'll link to in the show notes, or you can Google double tax stock options, and it should be one of the first articles. Outside of the tax withholding mismatch we mentioned earlier, where RSUs are being withheld at 22%, and you might be in the 37% bracket, one of the other biggest errors I find with RSUs is simply ignoring them and allowing them to become a large piece of your portfolio. Sometimes this is due to growth. Other times it's due to time or how long we've been at our employer. Usually it's a bit of both. Many times folks we encounter are in a somewhat paralyzing situation when the stock becomes, say, 70% of their net worth. This would be classified as a concentrated position, and we'd also call it concentration risk. 
on one hand, it's nice to have such a large position. It's nice that it's done really well, but it does become a major puzzle to solve. One additional factor in the diversification puzzle is that new shares continue to vest as time goes on. In theory, you want to diversify to protect your wealth, but a lot of times there's hesitation because the stock has done so well in the past. Furthermore, any shares you sell might have a significant tax bill associated with it, which adds to the resistance. In gambling, you hear the phrase, quit while you're ahead. But imagine if there was a penalty for stepping away from the blackjack table. If you were on a roll, why would you ever stop? Investing is not gambling, though there are certainly similarities. Let's say your total assets were $250,000. And then a couple of years later, with some RSUs, your total assets are now a million dollars. It sounds amazing. The problem is, it can be paralyzing when determining how to unwind or diversify this position. There can be hesitation in trying to protect and maintain that million-dollar status, despite it being the goal. It is worth mentioning these feelings are completely normal, and I fully empathize with them. In a sense, these decisions really come down to pain avoidance and a fear of missing out. If you sell at a high price, there's the pain of taxes, which no one enjoys. You do not have to experience that pain if you don't sell. Beyond this, there are additional pains. Maybe the pain of regret if we do not sell and the stock plummets. Or the fear of missing out if we do sell and the stock takes off. Given the hesitation, it's common for folks to hold on to a majority of the position, and potentially that stock normalizes or starts to go through a rough period. That $1 million portfolio may be down 50%, which causes its issues in its own right. We now may be subject to what's called anchoring bias, where we're now attached to the previous value and refuse to sell and put the funds into something potentially more appropriate because we're waiting for the stock to rebound. Though I personally want the stocks to rebound, that is not how investing works. Otherwise, I would just put all my money in all of the stocks that have fallen by 90%. Just because they reached a peak at one point, there is no guarantee that they're going to return to that peak. As mentioned, this can be very challenging and a paralyzing decision to think about. Here are a few things you can do. One, make the plan and decisions based on your own personal situation, not someone else's situation, and not based on any stock predictions. Two, come up with some selling plan. For example, I'm going to sell X percent of each vest, or I'm going to steadily get the 70% position, maybe down to 20% over the next year or two. And whatever plan you come up with, stick to the plan and spend that headspace to focus on something else. Using another Charlie Munger quote, all I want to know is where I'm going to die, so I'll never go there. I think of this often with tech employees and concentrated stock positions. Many times in tech, these are highly skilled people. They have high incomes and are great savers. It does not take a rocket scientist to forecast that they are on a great path. Therefore, it makes more sense to short out the ways in which that path can get disrupted. Potentially, this is based on a bad decision or a lawsuit or a disability, or it could be due to over-concentration or greed. Given that we have an idea of what to avoid, when we work with clients, 
One of our key missions is to bulletproof their finances and avoid ruin. There is a saying that concentration can get you rich, but diversification keeps you rich. Morgan Housel has talked about this recently. Now, the skills required to get rich are the opposite of the skills required to stay rich. In his book, he says, there are a million ways to get wealthy, but there's only one way to stay wealthy, some combination of frugality and paranoia. While I could certainly add some nuance there, there is plenty of truth. Given that investing success is much more about longevity and surviving than it is about high returns, it makes sense to put survival high on the list when making big financial decisions. Many of you know that Warren Buffett and his business partner, Charlie Munger, are worth many billions of dollars, but most don't realize that this duo was originally a trio. The third person was Rick Guerin, who took a hard left turn due to taking on unnecessary risk. Warren Buffett was once quoted saying, Charlie and I always knew that we would become incredibly wealthy. We were not in a hurry to get wealthy. We knew what would happen. Rick was just as smart as us, but he was in a hurry. Back to RSUs. They can certainly be wonderful tools, but focusing on your personal situation and goals almost always ends up being a better route to go instead of getting caught up in the Slack channel hype. One note on Slack channels, as they attempt to turn personal finance into some sort of a team sport, the person that's telling you to hold on to 100% of your stock, we don't always know the full story. Maybe they already have $10 million. Maybe they don't have mortgage payments or a family that depends on them. Maybe they're set up to inherit millions of dollars and don't even need the money, they certainly have different goals and priorities than you. One final thought to leave you with, when selling any stock, we are never going to sell at the perfect time at the perfect price, and we just need to accept that. You need to make the best decision for yourself with the information you have, and this is usually not based on the stock price or Slack channel. As always, I hope you found this episode helpful. If you have any questions, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. The easiest place to find me is probably at MikeTroxel.com. That's T-R-O-X-E-L-L. I have links there to the podcast, the newsletter called The Weekly Vest, and my firm, Modern Financial Planning. You can also find any links or resources for this podcast at TechPersonalFinancePod.com. <laughs>